text of Scripture, Revelation chapter 5. This is the Word of God. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll. And to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I want to deconstruct something in your thinking this morning before we even really begin. And that is, in a catechetical way, by way of catechism, question and answer, if I was to say to you this morning, who is worthy, you would quickly answer the question. It's in the text. We just read it. Who is worthy? The Lamb is worthy. But I want you to forget all that. I want you to experience the text this morning as the drama unfolds, as if you're reading it for the very first time. Set aside your assumptions, set aside the fact that, quote, I already know the answer, 
And I want you to experience the Word of God afresh. But the question remains, who is worthy? That is the question our text today both asks and answers. Now this chapter, this is one of those chapters that beams with the glory of Christ. The text really doesn't need any help at all in making Christ beautiful. So I'm not here to help the text this morning. This is the Word of God. It's living and powerful. It doesn't need my help. But I am going to attempt to bring the glory of the chapter to bear on your hearts and minds. There was a student that once asked his teacher many centuries ago. The teacher was the Franciscan Bonaventure. The question proposed to him was, why don't men love God more? And the teacher answered, they don't love Him because they don't know Him. If I can help you, dear saints, to see even a single detail of Christ's excellency today, I trust you will love Him more, that you will pursue Him more fervently. And that is my prayer for us this morning. So for starters, as we look at Revelation 5, let's get a little bit of context because chapters 4 and 5 are intimately connected. They are part of this second vision that John sees while he is exiled on Patmos. And there are numerous textual parallels between the two chapters, but there is a key differentiation or distinction between the two. In chapter 4, the emphasis is almost completely on the one seated upon the throne. You see that in the text of chapter 4. And yet, when we come to chapter 5, the attention shifts elsewhere. The attention shifts to Christ. And it is an incredible shift from the one seated on the throne to another figure that is in the presence of the Almighty. So, what I've done to help walk us through this, this drama of Revelation chapter 5, I've separated the sermon into three stages. Uh, I'm not the typical Baptist preacher that has three points. I've got to have something more clever. It's three stages. But the reason it's three stages is because this is like a drama that unfolds stage by stage by stage. So I want to begin where the opening verse of chapter 5 begins, stage 1, the question, who is worthy and what is the central focus in stage 1? It is the sealed scroll. Revelation 5.1, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back. Sealed with seven seals. That is where we pick up in the first verse of the fifth chapter. At this moment in the vision that John is beholding, his eyes shift from the one seated on the throne to this sealed scroll that God Almighty is holding in his right hand. His attention shifts. And it seems surprising, doesn't it, for, for John in the midst of this vision, for, for his eyes to gravitate toward a document 
when the one seated on the throne is before him. But that's exactly what happens. And so we must ask, what is the significance of this document? What could the contents of this scroll be? How should we understand the symbolic nature of this seven-time sealed scroll that is full of writing on both sides, the front and the back? I think a glimpse into the pages of our Old Testament will help us here. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. I'm going to move quickly. I'm just trying to build a case for what... This scroll is all about Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Now the connection may be more vague. But there is a connection. We have in Daniel's day a vision of a throne room and one seated on the throne and books opened. The picture of the judge of all the earth that will do what is right. That gives us a little bit of background. Daniel paints a similar picture. The courtroom scene where God is about to pronounce judgment, I think this is the first of several pieces that helped John to grasp, to wrap his own mind around the vision he saw in his day. But we need a few more pieces. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 2. I want to read verses 8 through 10 in Ezekiel chapter 2. Another piece of the puzzle. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Well, that sounds a little bit more familiar, I hope, to your ears. But there's an obvious difference. The scroll that is given to Ezekiel is an open scroll, not a sealed scroll. And as we read in Revelation, that sealed scroll actually is sealed with seven seals. But you're you're getting some additional background, some Old Testament context. The very things that John would have been grappling with in his mind when he sees this vision. This prophetic text in Ezekiel gives a little bit of a sense of the contents of the scroll, doesn't it? Words of lamentation and mourning. And woe, we'll see a further connection in a moment. But I think we're getting somewhere. Let's keep looking. Isaiah chapter 29. One last Old Testament text. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 11. 
the Word of God says, and the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read it, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. So now in Isaiah, we have a sealed book. Read this. I can't read it. It's sealed. It really seems that these are pieces of a puzzle from the Old Testament that help us to put together some of the significance or some of the meaning of what we read in Revelation chapter 5. There has been a lot of talk before John's day about scrolls and seals and the contents therein. But there's one more puzzle piece that is ultra-significant. It follows right on the heels of Revelation 5. And who can tell me what follows on the heels of Revelation 5? Six. That's exactly right. So turn to Revelation 6. The first two verses we'll read. Revelation 6, 1 and 2. Now I watched... When the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. This is the very beginning of what you hear referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But what is happening when that first seal is broken? Judgment comes. And what we see unfold in Revelation 6, 7, and 8 is a series of judgments that unfold as each seal, one by one, is broken and the scroll is unrolled. So, what is this mysterious scroll in the hand of of the one seated upon the throne. It's the scroll of destiny. The scroll of doom. It's the scroll of redemption. The scroll of wrath. It is ultimately the document of God's decree. It is the unfolding plan of human history authored by God Almighty Himself. It is the fullness of God's plan for the judgment of the wicked and the redemption of sinners. God's decree. God's plan for humanity. The very history that God has authored. Your history and mine. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. God's decree, the will of God being done. Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes, speaking of the Almighty, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God's decree. 
Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish my purposes. The will of the Almighty. So the text indicates that God is the author of this document. And there he is seated on the throne, holding the scroll with seven seals in his authoritative right hand. But it is a sealed scroll. Its contents are hidden. It's begging to be opened. One more clue that we need to address. The sevenfold sealing of this document is an important clue. Oftentimes in Rome, the last will and testament of a Roman citizen would be witnessed by seven witnesses and sealed with seven seals. So there's some imagery that John is employing here. In some sense, this scroll in John's vision is like a will. As with any will, only a specified executor has the power, executor, has the power and ability to execute the document according to the author's intentions. That's what happens with a will even in our day today. We need an executor. Additionally, the scroll is full of writing, the text says, on both sides, on the front side, on the back side. Thus, there's no space for additions. There are no amendments that will be made. There are no gaps. There are no empty blank spaces to be filled in at a later time. There is no space for change. And all of this, I think, speaks volumes about the nature of this document, about the nature of God's decree. Behind all the, quote, randomness around us, as it appears to you and to me. God's book is the book that has outlined every detail of every aspect of creation and its history. Every detail of my life, every detail of your life, every movement of every atom, every hair on every head. Hendrickson comments on this passage and he says this, The meaning is this. The closed scroll indicates the plan of God, yet unrevealed and unexecuted. If that scroll remains sealed, God's purposes are not realized. His plan is not carried out. If that scroll is not opened, it means there will be no protection for God's children in the hours of bitter trial. No judgments on a persecuting world. No ultimate triumph for believers. No new heaven, no new earth, no future inheritance. It's a mysterious scroll. The scroll of destiny. But verse 1 leaves us right where it left John the Revelator. This scroll must be opened. Its contents are of the utmost importance. The title deed to all human history must be executed according to plan. 
if you're feeling the text, you can cut the tension with a knife. Stage one, the sealed scroll. Now stage two. Who is worthy? None are worthy. Now, someone speaks. We evidently aren't the only ones wanting the scroll to be opened. In verse 2 we read, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? This is the million dollar question, isn't it? Who is worthy? It's a mighty angel that asks the question. Who is worthy to take it and open it? And the call goes out to the ends of the earth. Who is worthy? Silence. Nothing. Nobody moves an inch. This is not like the legend of Excalibur, the sword in the stone, with many approaching the throne of God, attempting to take that scroll and open the seals. Nobody moves. Everyone is silent. One brother said that the silence is eloquent of the bankruptcy of humanity. You see, the cherubim are there. The four living creatures are there. They hear the call, but they're silent. The 24 elders representing the church, they surround that throne. Silence. What about Michael, the great archangel? Gabriel, that delivery agent from the throne room of God? Michael fighting with Satan, according to Jude. Silence. The myriads and myriads of angels present. Millions and millions of them. What about them? Silence. The patriarchs, the prophets, the priests, the preachers, all of them silent. All heaven falls silent at the invitation of the mighty angel. Verses 3 and 4 clarify this. Look at the statements. No one was able. No one was found. You need to let that sink in this morning. Who has the right and the power to execute God's plan? Who has the ability to walk up to the one seated on the throne and take the scroll from the hand of the Almighty and open it? Who can rescue the persecuted church? Who can perfectly administer God's justice towards sinners? Who can comfort mourning and grieving saints? Who can restore all that Adam lost? You see, this document contains the story of paradise lost and paradise gained. All that Adam lost in Genesis 3, all that the second Adam regains, Revelation 21-22. 
What man lost in the garden, man must regain. But no ordinary man can do it. The question, who is worthy to take the scroll and break the seals? Silence. Everywhere, silence. Until the sound of weeping is heard. Look at verse 4. John's writing, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John, the, the beloved apostle, he begins to weep. Depending on your translation, I'm reading from the ESV, which says weeping or weep loudly. You, you might have, as you do in the NASB, wept greatly. Or in the King James, wept much. Or in the NIV, wept and wept. This was no ordinary weeping. This was no ordinary scene. But why the weeping? Well, he weeps because he realizes in this crucial moment that there is no salvation for God's people, no coming of God's kingdom, no hope for the human race unless someone can accomplish all God's purposes and fulfill all God's promises. I mean, consider John's situation. He's an exiled believer. He's suffering the persecution of a hostile world. Think back to the first vision. I believe y'all have been camping out on Revelation chapters 2 and 3 with the letters to the seven churches. What's the state of those seven churches in John's day? Two of those churches were on the brink of extinction. Three of the seven were seriously compromised morally and theologically. Only two of the seven churches are commendable. What's going to happen to the church? How is all of this going to turn out? Is, is John's life, work, and purpose to come to nothing? By the end of the first century, the church wasn't all that powerful. It was weak. It was weary. And John had seen all of this over the course of his lifetime. The last remaining apostle of the Lamb. He knew that his life was coming to an end. And there he sits on that small rocky island, isolated and alone in the midst of the Mediterranean Sea. He's imprisoned and exiled for Jesus' sake. We should understand why he weeps. Believers today weep at times. Maybe you've wept over the world's condition, the church's condition, experiencing something of the sadness of John's heart. There really is a lingering sadness in the heart of all God's people. We are those, as the Apostle Paul said, who are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. 
There are times when we question God's wisdom based on our circumstances. There are times when we fear what the future holds for ourselves, our children, our grandchildren. There are times we feel alone, surrounded by the darkness. But we're never alone. These are the tears of Adam and Eve as they look back over their shoulders to the entrance of the garden they are now leaving, only to see the flaming sword and the mighty cherub stationed there. It's, it's the tears of the patriarchs, always journeying onward, never really arriving. It's the tears of the Israelites who groaned under the harsh and oppressive rule of the Egyptians. It's the tears of the prophets, often alienated and alone, living on the run. It's the tears of exiles who hang up their harps while captured, abiding there in that foreign land. It's the tears of persecuted saints and martyrs, the beaten, the burned. It's the tears of longing, tears of expectation, tears of anticipation, mingled with tears of grief and suffering and pain. All Christians experience some degree of these feelings. Do you weep at times? I believe John in that moment was shedding those tears for us all. He's thinking to himself, you mean it, it can't change? No one is worthy? You mean this is the way it will be? The way things will end. But finally, thanks be to God, the tension is broken. Three words are heard. Weep no more. Stage two ends. Stage three begins. Who is worthy? He is worthy. The fifth verse, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. John, there is one who is worthy. The lion is worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the kingly Jesus testified of Jacob so long ago in Genesis 49. The lion, holy is he, just is he, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, he is worthy. Look to the lion, John. He is one fit to reign. He is one that can ably execute the contents of the scroll. He is one that can break those seals of wrath and woe. He can judge sinners perfectly, administering perfect justice. John, behold the lamb, the lion. Getting ahead of myself. Surely the lion has power and authority. Surely the lion's victory is certain. His rule, righteous, hallelujah, for the lion. But he's also the root of David. 
Maybe you remember in the 11th chapter of Isaiah that there will come forth from the shoot of Jesse a branch from his roots that will bear fruit and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. You see, the root of David has such significance. The lion will come from the loins, from the root of David, King David. This root of David will avenge himself and his people, the text tells us. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked. David's son, yet David's Lord. Man who is fully God, God who is fully man. Yes, we're talking about the God-man, the second Adam. He has conquered. He has overcome. Even remember what Jesus said in John 16.33, In this world, saints, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. He can execute all that is in that scroll of destiny. So, He takes it from the one seated on the throne. He he takes it from that righteous, omnipotent hand into His own hand. My destiny, your destiny, the church's destiny, the lion takes it into his own hands. Look, John, the lion, the root of David, he is worthy. What does John then turn to see? The sixth verse. And between or in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures. And among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He turned to see the lion. But when he turns, he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And it had been slain. But this lamb is alive forevermore. John turns to see the great lion, king, conquering one, and behold the lamb. What a rich history of biblical imagery that must have flooded John's mind in that moment when he hears this this voice that speaks of the lion and then he turns and he sees a lamb. High on top of Moriah's mountain, Abraham wields the knife over his beloved son Isaac. But God stops him and provides a lamb. Upon the great exodus of the people of Israel, when the Passover is instituted, there again we see a lamb. The lamb's blood is needed, and the blood applied to the doorpost and lintels, it will bar the entrance of the judgment angel, that angel of death. 
With the blood applied, there is safety. There won't be any weeping there. Isaiah, he has a grand vision of the Lamb in his day, doesn't he? The 53rd chapter, speaking of the Lamb, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He, the Lamb, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Surely John, in this moment, recalls his own citation of that famous saying of John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb, the glorious Lamb, the conquering Lion, Lamb, King. God doesn't do what normal kings do, saints. He he didn't choose the conquering path of the kings of old. He chose the path of suffering, humiliation, and death. The Lamb has conquered indeed, but He did so in an extraordinary way, by way of the cross. This lamb-like lion, this lion-like lamb, He is worthy. Revelation 5, verses 7 and 8. And He went and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne. And I'll pause there because you have to see and feel what is taking place. No one was there Worthy. No one was found. Verse 4. Weeping ensues. The tension is thick. And here we're introduced to the lion, lamb, conquering king. He is worthy. He walks up to the one seated on the throne and he takes the scroll from his hand. Utter relief. God won't release that scroll to just anybody. But the lion, lamb, king is worthy. Then we'll read on. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. With all authority and power represented by those seven horns, He is worthy. With all wisdom and insight represented by the seven eyes, He is worthy. With the fullness of the Spirit of Christ at work in every corner of the earth, executing God's decree, He, the Lion, Lamb, King, is worthy. And the worship begins. From weeping 
to singing. Upon taking that scroll, what follows are these expanding concentric circles of cascading praise that erupt throughout the heavens and the earth. Because he is worthy. From the four living creatures, then to the 24 elders, then to the millions and millions of angelic beings, all the way to the entire creation that has been groaning and longing for this. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Everything revolves around the Lamb. No wonder the songs that erupt around the throne. Let's read the rest of the chapter once more. Picking up in verse 9. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign in the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Who is worthy? Jesus is worthy. If Christ isn't central to your joy and your worship, you have missed the thrust of the entire Bible. Worthy is the Lamb. I don't know if you all are familiar with the hymn by Samuel Rutherford, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. But the last verse says this, The bride, the bride of Christ, eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown He giveth, but on His pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. You see, only Jesus is worthy to take the scroll and break the seals. And without Jesus, there are only tears. So, dear church, see this lamb-like lion, this lion-like lamb this glorious King as worthy. Praise Him as such. Love Him as the worthy one. Let's pray. Father, we cannot even begin to fully esteem, appreciate 
understand, comprehend, rejoice in the meaning of this text. What we do, we do in part. What we see of Jesus with our mortal eyes, we see in part. But, Father, there comes a day for every believer when we will see Him as He is. When we will see for the first time this Lion, Lamb, King, where we will behold and embrace the One who is worthy. Oh, Father, how we long for that day. Keep us until that day. Help us until that day to love this Lion, Lamb, King more and more. Help us until that day to trust Him more and more. Our destiny is in Your hand. The life of the church is in Your hand. The souls of every believer in Your hand. Keep us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.